This is the Commission Church Online. Welcome to our podcast. We want to be a church who brings heaven on earth through the word of God and the love of Christ. I pray this week's message blesses you. Genesis chapter 32 and verse 22 to 31 is where we are going with our study in our passage today. And like I said, I'm going to title my message, When God restores. Man, restoration is a beautiful thing, especially when God is the one that restores us. Uh, When God restores, it is beautiful. When God restores, uh, he brings things that were once dead, once staggering, once on the verge of expiring, back to life. My God is an expert at that. In Genesis 32, we're introduced to this guy that went through some, a staggering restoration of sorts. A man that walked far from God, and God in his divine mercy and love brings him right back, ropes him right back. We're going to take a break from our series in the Gospel of Matthew for the next two weeks to kind of talk about this particular subject, the restoration of God, the restoration plan of God. Um... When you hear of restoration, a lot of people cheapen restoration. There's a tendency as as soon as you hear the word restore, that people think that, oh, it's something bad. Uh, You know, we live in the times of HDTV where you see these shows, and if you're fans of all these home renovation shows, you know how these people walk into homes that are just destroyed, broken, hopeless, and they restore these homes and bring it back to life. Once things that had no value is restored and placed value upon. I learned the hard way about this when we, we first bought a home. Uh, we, didn't, we didn't restore the home or anything. We bought a good home, but we were looking for furniture. We were looking for furniture to furnish our home. And in the process of looking for furniture, somebody told us, thank you so much, Lakshmi. Somebody told us that we should look into this company called Restoration Hardware. And I said, okay, yeah, that sounds good. You know, I'm, I'm a cheapstake. I, I love saving money and anything that says restore. They said, man, they take all this old stuff, this recycled stuff, stuff that people throw away, stuff that, you know, nobody wants, and they polish it up, they make it look good, and they sell it. And I'm like, I'm about to get a bargain. This, this is exactly what my brown skin needs, something that is cheap, affordable, and looks good. So I went there. I went there, Amy, and uh, I was met with these amazing people that they welcomed me and they said, come on, welcome in, we are so excited. I'm like, I'm excited to be here. I'm about to buy this whole store. And uh, the first thing I saw was a dining table. It was a rustic dining table, looked amazing. I was like, man, they did a good job putting this table together. And, and he told me the story of how they got the wood from a barn and it was all, you know, this and that. There was this whole story associated with it. And I was like, man, that's awesome. And I looked at Sonia and I was like, uh, I, Sonia wasn't with me on that, on that one trip and I took a picture of it and I was like, what do you think? And Sonia was like, that's gorgeous. So I was like, that's gorgeous, I know it is. And I looked at this man and I was like, hey man, how much is it? And he was like, he looked, at the, he looked under the table, the tag was like hidden under the table and he looked at it and he was like, $8,500, and I was like, <laughs> I was like, hold on one second. Is this the right store I'm at? 
Because I thought that this was recycled, nobody wanted this stuff, and, and they were like, see, that's what adds value. So if you're looking for furniture, unless you have $8,000 to spend on a table, don't go to restoration hardware. But what it tells me is that there's value for things that are restored. There's this house that just came up on sale in just right down our neighborhood in, in the city of Murphy. Um, it's a house that was uh, actually uh, ignored. It was, uh, it was on the market for a long time, and uh, it was, uh, nobody wanted it. Nobody really was interested in it. And there was, it was because there was history. It was sitting on the market for a long time, and they lowered the price. It started at like $400,000 in the peak of, you know, when the housing market was, was hot. It was at $400,000. They reduced it to three hundred, dollars and finally it was at $295,000. And the reason it was so cheap was because of the history and the condition of the house. I'll give you a, a little bit of history. This, this house is located on the intersection of... Renner and Murphy, okay? So where, where Renner ends and Murphy, the, the Murphy, like the parallel road runs, that in that T intersection, so you, you, you go right in, cross a signal, and it's the first house right there. So what had happened is over the years, there were drunk drivers or people that just ran the signal and people that didn't know where they were going. They just ran the signal, went straight down, and because it was a T junction, there's a house right there, bad planning on the part of the developer went and hit the house like at least three times, three different incidents, okay, over the last few years. So this house has been remodeled, it's been broken down to the point where they finally put up barricades. They put up, I have a picture over here, if you could put that picture up real, real quick. The, the house on the left is what the house used to be like, okay? They put up these barricades everywhere and if you see, they have these metal poles that they eventually put up. Because that's how much the vehicles were coming. There's one on the left, the extreme left. The vehicles were coming and just hitting the house time and time again. Every restoration, somebody sells it, the next person buys it. And the funny thing is this. The seller does not need to disclose by law that none of this ever happened. So right now, a day ago, literally a day ago, this house came back on sale and it looks like this. Like this. And in a day, it went on, under contract. It's priced around $600,000. And this thing went under contract, and they've removed all of this junk from the front. That Blair's warning, don't buy it. The moment a buyer comes, they shouldn't ask, why are these steel barricades there? Because all they want is for somebody who's blind, like a blind buyer, who's excited about buying a house, to say, we got a great deal. So overnight... They work on a house that they bought for $295,000, restore this house, and in the process of fooling somebody, they're going to make $8,000 on a table. Well, uh, given that the table's really good, and given that the quality is great, and given that it looks phenomenal and amazing, and nothing like it looked like before, but the message is this that when God restores something, he takes what is ignored, broken, and God has the ability to take that which people have neglected, and even people themselves think that there's no hope for our, and restores it to beauty.
We're introduced to this chapter in Genesis 32. If you can go with me, Genesis 32 and verse 22. We all know this passage and have preached about it plenty of times, but I want to just share for a few minutes about this message. In verse 22, the Bible says, The same night he arose, he took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and set them across the stream and everything else that he had. He sent them across the stream and everything else he had. Someone say, he sent them. Verse 24, and Jacob was left alone. Someone say, he was alone. And when he was alone, a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven against God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask me my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered, or in the original language, restored, delivered. It has been set free. I have been freed. Verse 31, the sun rose up, the sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his See, the story is a beautiful example of what theologians would describe as a Christophany. A Christophany. Uh, A Christophany is an appearance or a non-physical manifestation of the person of Jesus Christ in any given biblical narrative. Uh, If you want to follow the notes, it's on the screen. Uh, the, the, The QR code for the Bible app is on the screen. But examples of the Christophany can be found in various passages of Scripture throughout the Word. Uh, Abraham is having a conversation with a man in Genesis 18, and that is an example of a Christophany, Bible, Bible theologians will say, of Christ himself being revealed to Abraham. In Daniel 3, the fourth man in the fire is an example of a Christophany in where Christ himself comes in and, and, and is with the boys inside of that fiery experience. I want to give you a little backdrop about this man called Jacob, for those of y'all who are new to the faith or who don't know much. Abraham, this man called Abraham, who is known as the father of faith, there are a lot of people that know him. Abraham was promised a son in his old age. Him and his wife Sarah, when they had forgotten about kids and they had gone into retirement, they were, you know, reeling in their 401k, they had forgotten about everything that what children were, they, they, they didn't care about that. God reveals himself to Abraham and says, man, I am going to bless you with a son. Around 25 years later, this, this prophecy comes to being where Sarah is pregnant with child. And the Bible talks about how they have this son called Isaac in their old age. Isaac goes on to marry, and he marries this woman called Rebekah. They have two sons, Esau and Jacob. They were paternal twins. 
Esau is this hairy man. He grows up to be this man who is this outdoorsman. We talked about an outdoorsman last week. Uh, Esau is this, is this hairy outdoorsman who loves the outdoors, who loves being outside, who loves hunting and fishing and so on and so forth. It's a dichotomy because Jacob was not the hairy kind. He was not the adventurous kind. He was more of the, uh, the, the um, what do you say, the homely kind. He was the, the one that loved sitting at home and uh, watching shows and, and watching TV. And he loved cooking stews and, and uh, watching the Food Network and HDTV. Not that you can't be both, but I'm not judging anybody. But I'm just saying he was the indoor type of person. He was close to mom. He was mom's little boy. He was loved by his mom. Jacob isn't this man of righteousness. He isn't a man of integrity. He isn't a man that people would look up to. He's a trickster. He's a con man. His name itself, it means con man. It means supplanter. It means this guy that is going to trick you. That's what, that's what Jacob meant. He would, he would do anything to survive and get by. In that culture back in the day, the older brother was the one that usually would get the blessing. Culturally, he would receive the blessing from the, from the father. The, the father's inheritance would go to the, to, to the older son and what, whatever was left over, the, the mercy of the father would probably give it to the younger son. But there was a fatherly blessing that was passed on to the oldest child. And, I, and, and Esau was the one that was supposed to receive that blessing. And from a young age, Jacob did not like this idea. It was planted within him that he was supposed to get this blessing from him by hook or by crook. So his, his life's mission then became, how can I deceive my brother in order to get this blessing from my father? So one day, Esau arrives home. Jacob is cooking some lentil soup, a vegetarian soup, not even a chicken soup. Not a chicken noodle, not a, not a goat stew, nothing of that sort. This was a simple lentil bean soup. And he's so hungry that he looks at his brother and says, man, can I have some? And he's like, sure, I'll give you some as long as you can give me a birthright. As long as you can give me your blessing that our father owes to you, and, and Esau was like, man, whatever, dude. You can take whatever you want. Just give me the stew. Man, when you're hungry, you're willing to do anything and everything. Come on. So, am I talking to somebody? Like when you're hungry, anything tastes amazing. Yes or no? Anything that you smell is like, ah, this is awesome. This is God sent. So by anyone's standard, this is a bad trade, but he makes the trade. There's this deep spiritual lesson inside of each of us that we can learn from this. When we're desperate, we settle for things that we shouldn't settle for. There's a deep spiritual insight that I want you to take back. The Christian should never get to a point of desperation where you let go of certain values in your life, certain things that you hold dear to your life, and certain things that is going to bring you blessing. When you get tired, when you get fatigued, and, you, and you're desperate, you lower your standards real quick. So Jacob goes up to his father, he lies to his father, he acts like he is his brother, puts on some fur, puts on some hair, fake hair on his arms, and the father who's blind feels his arms and says, okay, you are my son, and he steals his brother's blessing. Jacob officially becomes the first person, actually, sorry, Esau officially becomes the first person to be the victim of identity theft. 
Esau's mad. He finds out about this, and Esau makes a promise. He looks at his brother Jacob and says, I vow to kill you. I vow to kill you. So what does Jacob do? Jacob runs away. He takes all his belongings, all that he has. He runs to his, his uncle's house. He starts working for him. He's attracted to his daughter, uh, and he says, I want to marry your daughter. Marry this woman called Rachel, and uh, he was, she was the youngest daughter, and she says, man, I want to marry her. But according to the custom, he had to marry his older daughter first before he could give his younger daughter. So he deceives him. He looks at him and says, you worked for me for seven years. He understands the value that he brings, the hard worker in Jacob. He understands the value. And he says, if you work for me for seven years, I will give you my daughter. So he gives, her the do- he gives him his daughter, but he deceives him. Now the deceiver is being deceived. And so the, the uncle gives, gives Jacob the daughter that he did not want. The older daughter becomes his wife. And you're wondering, how did that happen? They had to cover their faces. They couldn't look at each other. All that stuff, it's a cultural thing. It happened to be, it happened to be where he finds out after the wedding, oh, I married somebody that is not my own. If you want to listen to this message, go and listen to Shan's message about Leah. He, she, she, he shared this around four years ago at, at the church. He, he shared an awesome message. You should listen to it. He marries Leah, all right? And he says, this is not the woman that I want to marry. So his father, uh, the, the father makes a... Uh, makes, you know, makes a deal with him and says, man, if you work for seven more years, I will give you my other daughter. So he works for another seven years for the hand of Rachel. So now he has these two women. He, he's, he's worked hard, right? And, and, and he's like, man, I really wanted this. And finally, I have gotten what I paid for. Like, like I've, I've done my time. I have done my time. But he's coming to that point where he's like, man, I think I have to make some things right. He has wives. He has children. He has a thriving business. Anything he touches is blessed. Man, everything is going right for him. He has deceived people. He has been deceived. Children, Jacob has children through both of them. He becomes prosperous. He stays with Laban for 20 years. And then finally, he says, we're leaving. So he takes everything and he flees. Laban finds out that he's fleeing. He wants to kill him. God speaks to Laban and says, don't kill him, bless him. So Laban goes up to him. He blesses him and says, go, do what God is asking you to do. And now he's ready. And God's like, man, I want to do something in your life. But Jacob is still missing something. He's like, I have success, I have money, I have fame, I have family, I have, fr- I have all of this stuff, I have cattle, I have, I have all that, that my life could ever want, but there was this gaping hole inside of him, and he just does not know how to put a finger on it. I want to remind somebody, man, stop wanting to reconcile with people without reconciling with God. He's saying, man, I know I've, I've, I've made my, 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 my father upset. I've made my brother upset. I want to get things right with my brother. And he's on the way to reconcile with his brother. He knows he might get killed, but he's like, I got to do this. But God's like, man, you have to be equipped to do that. I want to remind somebody, so many of us are trying to make reconciliation. We are trying to experience restoration in relationships. We are trying to make relationships work without really having a relationship with your maker. 
I want to encourage somebody, stop wanting to reconcile with people without reconciling with God. In chapter number 32, man, everyone is tired of Jacob. Everyone, everyone is fed up. Everyone's like, man, this guy's a cheat. He is a deceiver. But I want to remind somebody today, when people start getting tired of you, it's a good sign. God is just getting started with you. Jacob is about to start a journey. When the struggle begins, God has sent Jacob... He, he sends his, his wife, he looks at Jacob and says, Jacob, I need to have this rendezvous with you. I want to touch on three things this morning, and these three things are, are coming up where these are the three steps that at least God did in Jacob's life to bring him to a point of restoration and deliverance. For so many of us, we're praying for deliverance and restoration, but we don't know how it's going to come. The first thing that Jacob does is he sends his wife and his possessions away And God is about to teach him the value of being alone. See, Jacob has a problem. I want you to listen up. Jacob has this very deep problem. What was his problem? Jacob does not know how to be alone. He loves company. How many of you love company? Some of you are like, I hate company. I just love, I love to be by myself and I just don't want to go where anyone else is. But some other people love to be around other people. You just love company. You want to, you, you're always texting your, your, your group and like, what are we doing today? What are we doing tomorrow? What plans? And, and people in your group are like, man, just take break for a second. Like rest for a second. Chill out for a second. You always want to be doing something every day, every hour, every weekend. Jacob identifies with you because he loved people. He loved hanging out. He, why do I say that? Because Jacob, man, he loved staying in the kitchen with mom, right? When he, when, when he runs from Esau, he runs to his uncle's house. He's like, man, I don't want to be alone. Let me run to another person because I love company. He wants to be around people. When he gets there, he wants Rachel. He ends up with Leah. He still wants Rachel. So he's like, it's not good to be alone with one person. So let me have two wives. And then he has two concubines, and then he has children. Man, he has it all, and he's, that's not enough. He wanted cattle. It started in the womb. Like Esau, with, with Esau, hold, like he's holding on to his ankle. You got to understand, it started in there, this need for, for, to just be with people. Anybody have friends like that? They're just like really close to you all the time, just holding on to you all the time, don't want to let go, some unhealthy, toxic relationships. That's how this dude was, from the womb, holding on to the heel. That's how he came out, the Bible says. He came out holding on to his brother's heel. Always clingy. He always wanted to be connected to someone. The first step towards restoration that God had to teach him was, I need to break this off you because here's the problem. Okay, point number one, restoration starts with encounter. Restoration starts with encounter. I want to break this to you. The more time you have for people, the less time you have for God. The more real estate and the more time you give to people around you and your job and your things that are around you, your hobbies, the people that want to just stay busy all the time are the people that struggle to have a relationship with God. I am talking to some hearts today. That if you are struggling in your relationship with God, it's probably because your time and your resources are going to things and people that shouldn't be getting all of that investment. Number one, God needs to get him alone. God needs to teach him the importance of isolation. God needs to teach him the importance of just chilling out. 
God needs to teach him the importance of be still and know that God is good. In Genesis 32, verse 23 and 24, the Bible says he took them and sent them across the stream and everything else he had, and Jacob was left alone. Jacob, I can't work on you when you're addicted to the presence of other people. Anybody addicted to the presence of other people? You feel empty when you're not around other people? The introverts are loving this message right now. I want to remind somebody, God isolates before he elevates. If you're not seeing restoration in your life and God doing something in your life and spiritual maturity in your life, it's probably because you're not spending alone time with God Almighty. This is going to hurt. This is going to be an ouch moment for some of us, but this is a, it, it's an awakening moment that I want us to wake up to. God wants to do a work in me and he can't do it unless I leave people alone. God can't do stuff in their lives unless you're willing to release those people that you're holding on to dearly. There's this woman that was caught in the act of adultery. Jesus gets rid of the people that, that were condemning her and around her and says, leave. If there's anybody, just, just let go. You have no business being over here. If, if, if you are without sin, don't cast a stone is what Jesus is saying. Remember Jairus' daughter, healing Jairus' daughter? Jesus said, man, leave. Everybody leave. All you, all you criers, all you mourners, all you naysayers, all you unbelievers, get out of the building. This moment is a holy moment. I don't know how many of y'all have, have had some kind of surgery in this building, but when you have surgery, there are three different levels. There's this waiting room where you're getting ready for surgery and your family's around and they're with you and they're, they're praying for you and they're supporting you. And then there's pre-op. When, there's, when, they're, when they're getting you ready for pre-surgery is when the closest people around you, it could be your husband or your wife or your children, those are the people that can hold your hand and be with you in that moment. And then there's surgery where the doctor said, I know that you love them and I know she loves you, he loves you, but this moment is a moment for them to be alone so that the surgeon can do what he does best without distractions, without opposition, without crying, without tears, without interruption. It is a moment alone. In order to change you and work on you, I got to get you alone. But here's the problem. There's nothing more terrifying than being alone in the presence of God. You know why? It's a moment that God takes to do surgery on us. The reason, and I'll tell you, this is my life, and the reason, this is coming from a place of personal testimony. The reason that I like to run away from the presence of God is in the moments that I've spent alone in the presence of God, in the moments that God has torn me up and, and, and wrecked me and dissected me and, and, and exposed me and, and taken away stuff that I need and, and, and pruned me and, and, and snipped me and, and, t- and, and cut off things that need to be cut off. And, and I have trauma from that. And I'm like, Lord, I just don't like the feeling of operation room with Jesus. I don't know if you've been there, but that's guaranteed to happen. When you have alone time with God, it's guaranteed to do a work inside of you because that's the moment you're giving the master surgeon an opportunity without distractions, without the voices of the world, without the concerns of the world, without the, the opinions of the world. That's where the first doctor's opinion goes out of the window. The second doctor's opinion goes out of the window and you've chosen your surgeon and you say, I have picked you for a moment like this because I know what you're about to do is what I need. Time alone with God is that. 
is looking at God and saying, God, I recognize this moment is important. And I'm willing to trust my time in your hands. And God looks at Jacob and says, what's your name? There's this fight, there's this tussle, not because he doesn't know what his name is, but he's looking at Jacob and saying, I really need you to acknowledge who you are in front of me. He didn't have amnesia. God didn't have amnesia at that moment. I'm like, I don't know what your name is. And, you know, enlighten me. No, no, no. God was like, I know who you are, bro. I need you to know who you are. Like, tell me your name. And Jacob looks at him and says, I I don't know how many names Jacob has used in all the different places that he's been to. I don't know how many identity changes he's been through. I don't know how many driver's licenses. I don't know how many fake. He's done it before. I'm pretty sure he can do it again. And God is like, man, I don't know if you can fool me here because I have one question for you. If you want me to bless you, I have one question for you. What is your name? See, this is important, church. God is looking and saying, man, you can lie to other folk, but you can't lie to God. I need you to acknowledge. See, this this was the moment that there was no fronting. There was no hiding. There was no faking in front of God. Church, you can hide stuff from your family. You can hide stuff from your friends. You can hide stuff from your therapist for all you know. But in the the presence of God, you cannot hide. There comes a point where God wants us to deal with some issues head on. And when you try to run from God, God is running towards you. Remember, there's not much you can go. And there's not far distance that you can travel without God pursuing you. He is the hound of heaven. And no matter how far you run, my God pursues you because he loves you. God's intervention starts when he has your undivided attention, church. If you're going through a period of loneliness and your prayer life hasn't improved, you've missed the lesson God has taught you in your time of loneliness. COVID, man, was a time of loneliness for so many of us. If your prayer life did not improve during COVID, something went wrong. If your devotion time did not improve or start during COVID, there is something seriously wrong. Come on, am I talking to somebody? You might have got a bunch of projects done at home and a lot of hobbies that you picked up during COVID, but how much closer did you get with God? That moment of isolation could have defined you. If you haven't gone through your Bible, if you haven't read some books, if, you, if, if your walk with God did not get stronger, if your worship did not get more intense in your moments of isolation, you might have missed the lesson. See, the problem with isolation is the enemy tries to tell you, get out of it as soon as you can. Get out of it as soon as you can. This is unhealthy. Get out of it as soon as you can. There's healthy isolation and there's unhealthy isolation. Some people are going to take this word and run with it and say, God wants me to be alone, so bye-bye, everybody. I rebuke that in Jesus' name. That's not what I'm talking about. God brings you to points where he orchestrates isolation. Am I talking to somebody? He says, this is God mandated and you're going to know it. You're going to know that God has brought you to this point of preservation. 
This is the moment that I don't want you to be on the outside. I don't want you to be exposed to that job. I don't want you to be exposed to that relationship. So there's going to be isolation. There's going to be that breakup. There's going to be that job loss. There's going to be that, 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 that big financial burden that you're going, to, you're going to have to go through. But that isolation is God orchestrated. And when God orchestrates that isolation, don't escape from it. Embrace it. Stop letting the enemy tell you that isolation is bad. Jacob had to learn the lesson of being, being alone. Because man, for 20-something years, he's been on the go. Here's a dude who hasn't stopped running. Am I talking to somebody like constantly on the go? One after the other. Person after person. Deception after deception. He deceives his father. He deceives his brother. He comes to his, his uncle. And finally, he gets deceived. He didn't understand that what you sow is what you reap. What goes around comes around. If you don't like the harvest you're reaping, you got to look at the seed you're sowing. I'm trying to remind somebody this morning, stuff is going to catch up with you when you start running and running and running. Sometimes it's important to pause and, 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 and allow God to do a work inside of your life. And that probably would have been a warning moment for Jacob, but no, he did not understand. He just kept going on and on because so many of us in the, in the, in the quest for success and the quest for popularity and the quest for being known and wanted and loved will go to any extremes. You will put your body through any extremes. You will put your mind through any extremes. But pausing when God asks you to pause is so important and critical to your restoration. God wants to restore somebody. But you got to go through a process. Number two, restoration starts with change. Restoration starts with change. He learns how dependent he is on God in that moment of isolation. A man that was independent, that all his life for 20 odd years that was just fighting and fighting and striving, he learns how much he needs God. As they wrestle, the angel realized, man, there's this, there's this draw match that happens. And, and the angel was like, man, I, I'm going to allow him to, to come with some kind of a, a, a feeling that he hasn't lost. So the angel goes and breaks his hip. I don't think it's not that God could not win that battle, but he wanted to, he, he, he chose not to finish him. He's this trickster, he's this con man. He's never been in a situation where he hasn't man, manipulated, but for the first time in his life, he's about to be manipulated. He's about to be changed. I want to remind somebody that there's, there's stuff that's going to be out of your control in your lives. Stuff that you cannot control. And Jacob is about to face one of those moments. God has him in a chokehold. God has his leg twisted and he's like, man, I'm about to break this thing that is the most strongest in your life. What they would call the thigh or the hip, sorry, what they would call the hip was actually the thigh, the quadricep. The most important muscle and bone in the body was God, what God looks and says, I'm going to break it right now because you're never going to walk the same anymore. 
You're never going to walk the same way. You, why? Because till now you did everything on your own ability. I'm going to prove to you and I'm going to show you what it means to be dependent on a God that can lead you and bring you to restoration. See, that's what restoration is. It, it takes broken stuff. The scars of yesterday, the pain of yesterday, it doesn't look great, but my God who is the master restorer can take that which is blemished. He can take the scars of yesterday. He can take the pain of yesterday. He can take the bruises of yesterday and he can make beauty out of ashes. God looks at him, Amy, and says, you will never, ever walk the same it was meant to be that way. If you think that the way God restores is that he brings you back to how you were before, I want to remind somebody, when God restores, he restores you back better than before. It might not look like it on the outside. You walk into restoration hardware, it might not look pristine and all beautiful and plain and amazing. There might be dents and there might be bruises and there might be some crevices and there might be some stuff that is all disfigured. But man, the price tag tells me that this is worth something and there are people that are willing to pay for it. Why? Because it went through a process of restoration. See, here's the thing. What I realized was I may not be able to afford that $8,000 table, but that table went through a year or so of restoration. And he started breaking it down to me and said, sir, this is what I want to tell you. This particular piece went through this process and this process, and he broke it down to me. And because I know a little bit of woodworking, it made sense to me as to how much of work and diligence and pain went into taking that piece of wood, blemishes and all, and making it better and more useful and more productive than it was before. That which the enemy looked at you and said, you're worthless, you're useless, you're in the dumps, God has the ability to take and turn it upside down. I want to remind somebody of that today. The Bible says he was wrestling, he was fighting with God, and suddenly the verb changes. Listen to this if you haven't been listening to anything else. The verb suddenly changes. Oof. The Bible initially says he's struggling, he's wrestling, he's fighting with God. And then suddenly in the next word, the word, verse, the verb changes and it says, and then he is holding on to God. I'm telling you, this is, this is amazing if you understand this revelation. The Hebrew word used over there is when he started, he was avak. He was wrestling with God. Avak, wrestling with God. When he was done wrestling, he was shellak. He was holding on for dear life. Avak and shellak. See, that's what restoration does. Is when God decides to do something in you, with all the stuff that you, you try to fight it as much as you can and you're like, Lord, I don't know if this is for me, blah, 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 blah. But, but, but when God is done doing his work inside of you and restoring you, man, the value that God attaches to your life, it moves from avak to shah. It, there's no more striving. There's no more fighting for a person that has truly gone through a restoration and counter experience. You will come out of it saying, only God and God alone brought me out of that. 
I pray that you and I will go through restoration experiences where you believe that it's not you and your power and your abilities, but you give all credit unto God and God alone. There's somebody that's going to come out of here but that says, but God, shellac, not avak, but God. If it wasn't for God, if it wasn't for his mercy, if it wasn't for his strength, this, is, this, this revelation will change your heart. If you begin understanding the power of submission, allowing God to do what he does best, allowing him to change you. Worship team, you guys can get ready, but, but restoration starts with change, church. Restoration, it starts with encounter. It starts with change. And the third thing that I want to leave with you is restoration starts with worship. Restoration starts with giving God his due place. Just because you're broken, just because you're, you're, just because you're broken, just because you're not, you think that there's nothing good. Trust me, the one who restores you has his brand on you. I looked at that table and he looked at me, that man looked at me and he said, man, look under the table. And under the table was not imprinted, but etched in, embossed into the wood, the name of the manufacturer, the name of the restorer, the one that took this piece, worked almost a year and a half on this piece and brought it back to life and shape He was so proud of what he did that he put his name on there. Ha! That was beautiful. He didn't look at it and say, man, it doesn't match the pristine, beautifully stained, no blemish furniture that you get at Rooms to Go, which I bought eventually. (laughs) Because that was my budget. He said this might have blemishes and if an ordinary eye that doesn't appreciate it looks at it, they might not even see beauty in this. But if you're not willing to pay the 8000 there's the door. You can walk right up. But guess what? This man looked at me and said, do you know who he is? And I was like, obviously not. He's like, this guy is one of the premier wood restorers in America. And the reason why it's priced the way it is is because his name is at the bottom of the table. (laughs) Oof. Jacob stops. It's amazing when you actually see the face of God in your striving, in your struggle in the pain that you go through when you actually have an encounter with God, it changes you completely. He stops and he says, I'm gonna name this place Peniel. Naming something, putting a name on it is an act of worship. You remember Jacob? He sees, he sees the presence of God in this place and he calls the place Bethel, the presence of God, the house of God. You see Samuel, he sees victory over the Philistines and he calls that place Ebenezer. He worships God in that place and he puts the name of God on there. Hagar sees God and he says this, she says this place is Elroy. The well comes after that name and says there's life that comes out of here. God has given life. So I call this place Elroy. 
Oof. Jacob looks at that point of encounter and he takes the name of God and he puts it on that place and it says this place would call, be called Peniel. It would be a place where I saw God. His restoration, restoration meant something because it had the name of God on it. I want to remind somebody, no matter what pain you've been through in your past, what you're walking through right now, there's nothing my God cannot take and cannot restore and make it better than what it was before. But Lord, nothing new can come out of this. He doesn't, he doesn't look at you and say, I'm here. Com-. He's not comparing you to rooms to go. He's looking at you and saying, you will be unique. You will be beautiful. My image will be upon you. I have created you in my image and my likeness. And God loves you so dearly in such a beautiful way. And I want to lean into you today. And I want to speak life over you today and say that you are loved. God loves you so dearly. I don't know what situation you are in in your life, what impossible situation, what your past is, what blemishes are, but I want to remind you of one thing, the God that restored me from my impossible situations. When people wrote me off, the reason where I am today is not because of my credit, it's not because of my abilities, it's not because of anything else. It's because I have the name under me. The reason I walk is because I walk based on the name, the authority, the name of Jesus that is on me, that gives me value. I can look at anybody or anything that deems me unworthy and I can look at them and say, have you looked under the table? Have you looked under the table? It might not look at it on the outside, but get to know me and you will see Jesus inside of me. I want to speak to somebody. I, I don't know. God, God told me to take a break from Matthew because he said, I want you to speak about restoration today. And as I was preparing this week, this message might have been for one person. But here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If, you're welcome to sit, but if, if God spoke to you this morning and if this was you and you say, Pastor, I'm positioning myself and I need to be restored and I need to have some healing and I need to have an encounter and I need to have some change and I need to worship in my restoration. Would you stand up to your feet right now? Thank you for listening. We love bringing you the word on so many different platforms. We are so thankful for what God is doing in and through us. We'd love for you to subscribe so you don't miss out and don't forget to share this message if it has blessed you.